Please take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 5. We are going to look primarily beginning in, in verse 10, and then we'll move to about verse 24. We've been tracking through the book of Daniel for quite some time. There is much for us to see here in, in Daniel's words to, to the king. But as we come to this text, before we enter in and study it, would you join me and ask the Lord's help for us this morning? Father in heaven, we long for your thoughts to be our thoughts and your ways to be our ways. And we pray that you would help us as we meditate upon your word this morning, that those truths, the reality, will become our reality. And we will think after you, walk after you. Do this in us. By your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Sometimes speaking the truth is the hardest thing you can do. Of course, in our day, we will have people who emphasize the, the need to speak their truth, my truth, your truth. But speaking the truth can be the most difficult thing that we face, especially when the ones that we are speaking the truth to are those in power. And that is exactly what we find going on in our text today. We have seen examples of that, speaking truth to power in history. You find this in every age where, the, where it is necessary for those who know what is right, know what is true, to say it out loud, and to say it out loud to the people, to their faces, not, you know, some hidden away in an anonymous account on Twitter or on social media somewhere, but to speak it directly to them and directly in the, in the presence of others, to hold them accountable, to speak what is true to those who, who may harm you for what you say. That is a a terrifying thing. That's a difficult thing. Nobody likes confrontation. Maybe we shouldn't say that. Few people like confrontation. There are some who seem to thrive on it. Most of us, we prefer not to have it. We prefer to avoid it. But sometimes confrontation comes. We think of confrontations like Rosa Parks being told to move to a different part of the bus and she refusing to do so. Courageously, boldly, might think of Martin Luther, interviewed, inquired, uh, investigated, so to speak, in front of the, the Germans would say, the Diet of Worms, or we would say the Diet of Worms. And there he, he is, all that he has written is laid out in front of him, and he is questioned about it. He is, he is in, everything is, is, is put under the microscope. And after thinking through all the questions and everything that he says, he, has, he had written, he responds very simply, here I stand, I can do no other. We might think of Nathan the prophet, recorded in the Old Testament, who stands before King David, and after giving him an illustration of another instance, and Daniel, David, King David getting all upset, Nathan the prophet says, you are that man. That's speaking truth to power. That's confronting those in authority. That's what Daniel does in the presence of King Belshazzar. Last week, we talked about who King Belshazzar was. 
where he had come from. We are about 30 years removed from Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 1 through 4 is all about King Nebuchadnezzar, his reign. Belshazzar comes about 30 years after. Well, he really is shorter than that. He's been on the throne of Babylon, serving as co-regent under his father, who serves and lives outside of Babylon. And Belshazzar is co-regent under his father, serving as ruler in Babylon. And he has been doing so for about 15, 16, 17 years by this point. His reign, his power is unquestioned. And the Persian army, the, the Mede and Persian army, is at this point, they had just defeated, days prior, defeated the main part of the Babylonian army. The Babylonian army had fled, was shut in in another fortified city, not too far away. But Babylon itself, Babylon proper, the city of Babylon, hadn't been conquered for about a thousand years. Belshazzar and those with him, they were pretty sure if it had stood for a thousand years, it would stand for a little longer. If armies had come and gone and had not been able to breach their walls, they certainly wouldn't be able to anytime soon. And so, to show off how confident they were, Belshazzar throws a massive party. And that's the first part of this chapter is all about that party. This big, arrogant party. We are good. No one can touch us. We have enough food. We have enough water. Our walls are, are more than defensible. They are impenetrable. There's no way anyone can come and attack us and destroy us. We're untouchable. But more than all of that, our gods have made us invincible to the rest of the world. And to show off their pride and their arrogance of their gods over all the other gods of the nations, they bring out the gods, I'm sorry, they bring out the instruments of worship from the nations that they had conquered. Particularly, they bring out the, the, the instruments of worship that have been used in the worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem. They bring them out and they use them in their own celebration and there they praise the gods of gold, of silver, of iron, of bronze, of wood and stone. Mocking the gods that they have defeated. Look what our gods have done. How much more powerful they are than any other deity. With a firm grip on the vessels of worship of these other gods, they drink, they laugh, they mock, they scorn. They are filled with arrogance. It's at that moment... Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. Literally, by a lampstand in the middle of this party, a hand appears and begins to write on the wall, and it, it terrifies this man, terrifies this king. And he responds by gathering all of his astrologers, all of his sorcerers, all of his the Chaldeans, they would have been this elite group of intellectuals, but more than just merely academics. They, they combined some form of spiritualism with their, with, with their intellectual knowledge. And he gathers all of his spiritual help desk people, calls them to account, come help me fix this. None of them can help them. And it's at that moment that the queen comes, the queen mother comes in verse 10, and she recounts to him, don't you remember there was this man named Daniel? Read along with me, verses 10 to 12. 
The queen, because of the words of the king and of his lords, came to the banquet hall. And the queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Don't be afraid. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the, magi- of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. And inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let this Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. So she is the one who reminds King Belshazzar of Daniel. And so Daniel is called upon. Belteshazzar, Belshazzar calls on Daniel. We read what he does in verses 13 to 16. And I I want us to see very quickly, as as we walk through this passage, what we're going to find is Daniel is, first and foremost, he he is a bold witness as he testifies of the Lord to to the Babylonian ruler. Read what King Belshazzar writes or says to Daniel. He says, then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you. The spirit of God is in you And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I want you to notice Daniel's response in verse 17. He says, And Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. One of the things that we see very easily here as as King Belshazzar calls in Daniel what we see is that he is giving sort of a backhanded insult to him. It's, you see there in verse 13, are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? He is reminding Daniel of where he has come from. This is not This is not what the queen has reminded him of. He is interjecting this himself. He's like, look, I know where you come from. You are a slave. You're a servant. You're one of the people whom our nation conquered. You're a foreigner. You're an immigrant. You don't belong here. We beat you. Our gods defeated your gods. We are superior to you. Let's just remember that. But Daniel, that doesn't bother him in the least. And he goes, he goes from insulting him in this way, reminding him, hey, you are nothing more than, a, than, than one of those people whom our nation conquered. Don't forget that. And then he goes on, and then he begins to praise him, piling on praises. You're, not only are you a slave, but I've heard great things about you. 
You can solve riddles. You can, you can understand things that no one else can understand. You have the spirit of the holy gods that's in, in you. You have special access to God. And he praises him. And then more than this, he tries to manipulate him. But Daniel, Daniel's not motivated by his approval ratings. Daniel's not trying to live for the good opinion of King Belshazzar. He's not, he's not motivated by, by making sure that this guy is adequately pleased with him. Whether he thinks ill of him, whether he thinks good of him, Daniel is going to declare the truth. More than this, we find that Daniel can't be bought. He's not motivated by material goods. King Belshazzar promises to give him elaborate wealth and prestige, power and prestige. If he gives the interpretation, he will, ha- he will be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third person and the ruler of the kingdom. So you have King Nabonidus who's over him. That is Belshazzar's direct father. And he will give Daniel that third place in the rule, third place in line. This is great prestige, great, great royalty, great uh, immense wealth. We see that it, the gold chain signifies that, but more than that, the fact that he is going to clothe him in purple is a big indicator of this wealth and prestige. Now, you and I, that, that means nothing. You were probably, you read that, and that meant nothing to you except that, okay, he's going to have a purple shirt. Okay, he's going to have a, you know, some clothing of purple. But in the ancient world, purple was more than just, more than just a color. It signified immense wealth. The, the dye that was used to color garments purple was extremely rare and extremely difficult to get. It was only, you were only able to get it from a few places in the ancient world. It was garnered, believe this or not, it was garnered from sea snails along particular coasts, along particular places. One of those places would be the ancient city of Tyre. Purple would become the color of nobility and royalty. By the time you come to uh, later, a hundred years later, one of the Persian historians, Theopompus, what a, what a name, right? Theopompus, that, what a guy of, full of self-importance. He, Theopompus, he t- talked about how to have purple dye, a, an article in purple dye was literally worth its weight in silver. By the time you come to uh, Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire and then later the Roman Empire, to wear purple was to be a part of the special group of those who were in charge. In fact, in Rome, only those who were in some sort of leadership were allowed to wear purple. It was such so expensive. It was a mark often of of. Either you are a part of the Roman household or that you had gained special honors of the Roman military. Military generals, Roman military generals were given after enormously uh, notorious victories. They were given robes of purple to mark such occasions. This is, this is not him going to Walmart and finding something off the clearance rack. This is him going to the ancient version of Gucci and Armani and 
whatever else you may find. This, this is top-level stuff to clothe him in this way. This is massive wealth, massive prestige. But Daniel's, Daniel's voice isn't for sale. The truth isn't up for grabs. The temptation for you and I to speak for the approval of others or to speak so that we will gain something from someone else or to preserve a status, it is incredibly strong. But Daniel speaks truth to power. He says, keep your gifts for yourself. I don't need them. I don't want them. He is bold. He declares the truth. Saying, I don't need your gifts. I don't need your approval. But I will tell you the truth. Friends, may you and I have such courage. And I want us to see what it is that Daniel declares. And while it would be worthy of us to... to, to look at the remaining verses of chapter 5, because most of it comprises Daniel's message. We're going to divide it up into two weeks. We see the first part of his message in verses 18 to 23, 24. Follow along, verses 18 and 19, first part of Daniel's message. We see him speaking boldly. The first thing that Daniel wants Belshazzar to know, O king, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he, that is the Lord, whomever God wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished or willed, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. The very first thing that Daniel reminds Belshazzar, the king of, is that though he may have the title of the king, he is not ultimately the one who reigns over all things. He says, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was the greatest king, emperor in Babylonian Chaldean history. No one approached him. The Babylonian empire itself was unbelievably great. Its wealth had grown immensely. Under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, Babylon itself had not only prospered and grown financially, but in every way conceivable, the city had become the very center of world economics. It had become the center of world power. And Daniel has the gall, the courage to tell This king, Nebuchadnezzar, was given his reign. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. Certainly he did. But ultimately, the one behind it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was the Lord. More than this, it's more than just that God is the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. All of those things that you look back on and praise King Nebuchadnezzar for, let me tell you who gave those to him, God. But more than that, he, he goes on. God gave him 
all peoples, nations, and languages to fear and tremble before him. And he reminds him, whomever God wills, he kills. Whomever he wills, he exalts, he keeps alive, he sets up, he humbles. Here is a man who is so filled with his self-importance, so confident in his gods. Our gods have done this. Our gods have made us great. We, Babylonian excellency, is due to the Babylonian supremacy. We are the best people on earth. This is the best nation on earth. This is the best city on earth. No one competes with us. No one approaches us in greatness or glory. And Daniel, this bent 80-year-old man by this point in his life, reminds this king, oh no, oh no. Your greatest ruler was given his reign. Your greatest ruler was given his glory. Your kingdom is great because God has allowed it. He raises up, he brings down. And he goes on to describe what God does So the first thing he reminds them of is that they are not really in charge. It is God who is sovereign. He is the one who is great. He is the one who gives glory. But then he says, not only are you not really in charge, he reminds him secondly that the problem of Belshazzar, the problem that is being revealed with this writing on the wall, the heart of the problem is the heart. Look at me at verse 19. So because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever God wished, he executed. Whomever he willed, he kept alive. Whomever he willed, he set up. And whomever he willed, he put down. Verse 20. But when his, that's Nebuchadnezzar's, when his heart was lifted up, exalted with arrogance. And you remember that in chapter 4, that account that we talked about a few weeks ago. When his heart was lifted up in pride, his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts of his dwelling. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven. Till he finally knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew all this. Those last words there in verse 22, although or though you knew all these things, that, that tells us something. We know from the, the history that we recounted last week, the close ties, we were only 30 years removed from the time, the rule, I'm sorry, from chapter 4 of Daniel. We were only 23 years about that removed from the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar would have most likely not only been alive, but he would have been living in Babylon during this time. We know from historical records that Belshazzar's direct biological father, Nabonidus, was one of those who served in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. It is most certain that Belshazzar would have known what was going on. 
He would have been a part of the inner circle of, to hear what the strange thing is happening to King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only had he been humbled, but now at the end he is, his mind is restored. That's not something that's easily hid, especially by those in power. And Daniel says, you knew all this. His heart was lifted up as pride, and so God humbles his heart. And you, though you knew all this, your heart is now lifted up in pride, exalting yourself and your gods above God himself. The issue for Nebuchadnezzar was his proud heart. And this is Belshazzar's problem too. The heart of the problem is the heart is a heart of pride. The issue is the heart. The issue of us all is our, our heart. The issue that we have before God doesn't stem merely from some actions that we have done, a mistake that we have made on the side. We are so good at distancing ourselves from things we have done. Oh, you know, yeah, I, I made that mistake. It, that's so uncharacteristic of me. That's so unlike me. I don't normally act this way. I don't, that's, not, that's not me. We make excuses and justifications for the things that we do. But all this, the Bible tells us, arises from the heart. Jesus himself repeatedly reminds us that the things that we do come from somewhere. They come from our heart. The prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied just a generation earlier than Daniel, he reminds us the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, so wicked we can't fathom it. That is, we, we want what we want. The reality is, it's not that you and I can separate our, our bad actions from ourselves. If you, this afternoon, it's chilly, if you want to go home, make yourself a cup of tea, you drop a tea bag in hot water, and what happens? Whatever's in that tea bag is going to come out. It's going to cause the, the entire cup, or whatever you have, it's going to cause the entire cup to taste like whatever's in that tea, tea bag. Those circumstances that you respond wrongly to, that bring out your anger, that bring out your irritation, that bring out your lust, that bring out your greed, that bring out whatever aspect of you, you would prefer to keep hidden. Where does that come from? It's not the people around us. And we are so quick to blame. Oh, I really shouldn't have gotten angry. But you! The reason we get angry, the reason we act, the reason we sin is because there is something wrong with our hearts. Here the issue is pride. And pride comes in many forms, in many disguises, in many ways. It can be godless and it can try to look godly. It can come with lots of knowledge, lots of biblical knowledge even, but little biblical love. It can come ignorant. It can come smart. It can come critical. The proud heart expects to be served, to be honored, to be revered, to be respected. 
And it is the proud heart that God here condemns. Now, most of us don't tend to think of ourselves as proud. We might have moments of pride. We might say, we might admit, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little too proud. Or I, I have some pride. But most of us typically don't think ourselves of as proud people. And if we do have pride, we do our best to, to minimize it. But pride, pride is, like, is like snoring, right? You don't know you do it until someone else is telling you. Oh, I, I don't snore. Oh, I beg to differ. Pride is like middle schoolers who don't think they need to wear deodorant yet, but do. Right? If you've ever walked into a room of middle schoolers and they're all convinced, I, I, don't, I don't smell, I don't stink, I'm fine. You open that door and you, you start calling 911 before you can hit the floor. It's, it's powerful. Pride is like someone who wears, like, who showers in cologne, you know? And like they think they smell good and everyone else is like, Eyes are watering as they greet them. They don't recognize it. We don't recognize it. But it's something we, is around us. Knew of a man once who, he was dating a girl. He had met a girl at college. Her family, she had come from a family of pig farmers. It was her first time, it, being at college was her first extended time away from the pig farm. He is dating her her freshman year. They were returning home for Christmas break. She was bringing her boyfriend back. I've met this guy, bringing him home for Christmas to meet the family. And as they get close, all of a sudden, she is hit with the smell of the pig farm. What is that smell? And her boyfriend looks at her and says, that's a pig farm. That's not a pig farm. I've lived on a pig farm my entire life. That's not what a pig farm smells like. It doesn't have that smell. She had grown up with it. Didn't even know it was a part of her life. That's us. Pride is so much a part of our lives, we don't even realize it's, it's there. It's so, it's rarely obvious to us, rarely offensive to us, but it's obvious and offensive to others. More importantly, it's obvious and it's offensive to God because ultimately pride is our exaltation of ourselves against him. Here, King Belshazzar is filled with pride. Then follow along with me, verses 24 onward. We'll start with verse 23. Verse 23, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, you have all drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Here he's, he's showing us the foolishness of this kind of idolatry. You have praised and lived for these gods. They neither see nor hear. They cannot speak. They are helpless. Meanwhile, you have not only ignored, 
You have mocked the God who holds your very life, your breath in his hand. Verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, that is from God, and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel a parson, or tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of each word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. We'll stop there. We're going to come back to those verses next week. Each of those things, I'm sorry, not next week, in the new year. Each of those words carries such weight, engages so much, there is so much there. What I want us to see first and foremost is that there is the judgment of God on King Belshazzar is certain. It's certain. This king who is lifted up in pride, his judgment, the judgment of God is certain. He will not let him go, and we can be guaranteed he will not let us go. If God is holy, he, he, must, he must judge that which is wrong. If he is just, he cannot let that, let that which is not good be merely swept under the cosmic carpet. He must deal with it to be good and righteous. That is exactly what he is going to do with King Belshazzar. The moment has come. His days were numbered. The end is at hand. How will we respond to such an example of this? Will we in pride think that we are different, any different than King Nebuchadnezzar, any different than King Belshazzar, that we are more secure, better off, Set it aside, forget it, we don't need to think about it. Let me draw our attention back to those words that were read earlier from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord. Here is this, not just, that is not an invitation, friend, that is a command. Seek the Lord, but seek him while he may be found. What does that tell you? It tells us that there is a time in which God may not be found. That there is, there is a time in which the, the offer for repentance will be over. When death will come and judgment is certain. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here is the call for us to, to draw near there is an urgency to it. We do not know how long our lives will be. We do not know how many more breaths God will give us. How many more numbered our days, how long our days are. Seek the Lord. Call upon him. And what will God do to those who are wicked, to those who are sinners, to those who are broken, to those who are rebels against him? 
we would expect if he is just for him to punish. But he doesn't say that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. And what will he do? He will not just pardon. He will, what is that word? Abundantly pardon. It's not that you're, you're barely forgiven, that the red ink of your offenses before God, they are mostly erased, mostly taken care of. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Why does God do this? Why does God promise to not just pardon, but abundantly pardon? That's not how we would respond. Someone who offends us, someone who lives against us, someone who harms and hurts and does what is wrong, we want justice. Why does God respond this way? And it's very much because he is not like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You and I, we want to extract pain. Even often in a relationship with someone, when they come to you, I'm sorry I hurt you in this way. Even then, we are often want to extract just a little bit of pain, don't we? I'll forgive you, but I want you to know how much I was hurt by what you did. Oh, I'm really sorry. I know. And we, and we, we, we prolong their sorrow. We, pro, we make them ask forgiveness again and again and again. We want them to feel how badly they act. We want them to know deeply inside how hurt we are from them. But God, he abundantly pardons. He abundantly pardons. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. And because his ways are not your ways, and because his thoughts are not your thoughts, there is abundant pardon for you. There is abundant pardon for me. Because his ways are not your ways, his thoughts not your thoughts, he has sent his son into the world, which we celebrate this Christmas season. And his son having come to be one of us, to become like us in our humanity, he has died in the place of sinners so that all who call upon him may feel and may know that abundant pardon. Christ was punished in the place of sinners for sins he himself never committed. Oh, friends, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Turn. Turn from your living your life your way. Turn to God. And he will abundantly pardon. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more stronger than darkness, than the darkness of our sin. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are astonished at your mercy. That you, a holy and just and good God, 
would have mercy on us, and would have mercy on us at such great cost to you in your Son. Him dying in our place, bearing the judgment for our sin, the unrighteous, having our sins removed so that in Christ we might become the righteousness, your righteousness in him. Oh Lord, our God, thank you. Give us joy today to, re- to know, to savor, to live for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.